Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendes, and this is episode one, Roots to Romans. This episode, we'll be taking a very general look at some of the significant historical events and milestones of the Iberian Peninsula from about the time of the Phoenician presence to the eve of the barbarian invasions of the 5th century AD. This brief history will serve to add some background and some context to the world we will be jumping into in this series. After all, nothing happens in a vacuum, right? As a note, when I use the word Portugal in this episode, when describing the location of events and places, I'm simply referring to the geographical area where modern-day Portugal is located. At no point during the timeline we will be looking at today is a Portuguese people or Portugal as a political unit, as we understand it today, even remotely being conceived of. Additionally, for this episode, I will be drawing heavily upon a book that I highly recommend by author Anthony R. Disney, entitled A History of Portugal and the Portuguese Empire, Volume 1. So, if you're looking for an accessible read on this topic, this book is a great place to start. Before we can jump in, we must begin by talking about the geography of the Iberian Peninsula. Geography is an incredibly important factor in the shaping of human history. Geographical features, after all, are the canvas over which people, tribes, kingdoms, empires, and countries have all played out their lives. For example, mountain ranges dictate the climate you live in. Whether you live in a humid and rainy climate or whether you live in a hot and dry climate, it's all predicated by geography. Case in point, why was Egypt one of the earliest and most successful kingdoms of the ancient world? The answer is geography. Egypt was protected from invasion by the Mediterranean Sea to the north, rapids and waterfalls to the south, and deserts to the east and west. And of course, what would Egypt be without the famous regular flooding of the Nile River? that provided so much food surpluses. Why has the Eurasian steppe produced some of the most famous nomadic horse cultures the world has ever seen? Again, geography. The Sarmatians, the Huns, the Mongols, none of them would have had the ability to maintain the large numbers of horses and cattle they required without the vast open grasslands that make up the steppe. In short, geography matters when discussing historical events. So, I will give you a brief general description of the major features and try to give you at least some sense of the areas we will be touching upon. The Iberian Peninsula is located in the far southwestern corner of Europe. The Pyrenees mountain range to the northeast effectively forms a natural boundary between the peninsula and the rest of mainland Europe. 
It's bordered to the north and the west by the Atlantic Ocean and on the south and the east by the Mediterranean Sea, which separates it, though not by much, from North Africa. The peninsula is dominated by the Meseta Central, which is a central plateau encircled by several mountain ranges, such as the Cantabrian Mountains to the north, the Iberian System to the east, and rimmed to the south by the Sierra Morena Mountains. The plateau is intersected by the Central System, which is a mountain range that runs from Serra da Estrela in central Portugal all the way to the Iberian System in eastern Spain. Many of the geographical regions of Portugal are the western portions of the geographical features that both cradle and intersect the Meseta Central in Spain. The major geographical division in Portugal is between the north, which is influenced by the Atlantic, and the south, where the climate and landscape are Mediterranean. The dividing line between these two regions is the mountain range of Serra da Estrela, that runs diagonally across the country. A lot of the territory to the north of this dividing line is mountainous, with green landscape that receives a substantial amount of rainfall. To the south, the climate is drier and hotter, with long, low horizons. As you can see, Portugal is hemmed in by the Atlantic, Spain, and North Africa, each of these exerting their own distinct pressures and imprints on Portuguese history. I highly recommend that you do a search online for a topographical map of the Iberian Peninsula to familiarize yourself with these features. In this case, a picture really is worth a thousand words. I will also be putting up a map on the Facebook group, so if you haven't checked this out yet, go ahead and join us. Around the 8th century BC, the great trading civilization of the East, the Phoenicians, who were a client state of the Assyrian Empire, had been establishing a string of trade settlements in the portions of southern Iberia. Notably, the modern-day cities of Cadiz in Spain and Faro in Portugal likely had their start as Phoenician trading hubs. The establishment of these trading settlements didn't have much of an effect on the northern portion of Portugal. In the south, however, the effects were more substantial. Between 700 and 500 BC, a process of so-called orientalization began to take shape in Andalusia and in neighboring Algarve. This process significantly altered the local communities by diffusing among them ideas, customs, and technologies that would shape local communities into something resembling the cultures of the ancient Near East. These communities developed a more sophisticated artistic tradition, adopted writing, and began worshipping Near Eastern cults, like the cult of the Phoenician fertility goddess Astarte. This cultural diffusion continued until the fall of the Assyrian Empire in 612 BC, at which point continued contact with the Phoenicians in Iberia ceased rapidly. It's thought that Phoenician traders and Celtic immigrants were responsible for introducing iron to the region of Portugal, and by 500 BC, iron tools and weapons were being produced throughout the area. Iron's superiority to bronze was evident. Iron is stronger than bronze, and it can be honed to greater sharpness as well. And speaking of Celts, thought to have originated from Central Europe, the Celts were an Indo-European people that apparently liked to travel to just about everywhere. They spread far and wide. 
ranging from as far as the Iberian Peninsula all the way to modern central Turkey. The word Celt has its origin in the Greek word Keltoi. Herodotus first used the word in his histories in reference to the peoples living around the head of the Danube Delta and the peoples of Western Europe. It's important to remember that the word Celt is a catch-all term that is used to describe a multitude of different tribes who shared many commonalities, but who were also distinct from each other. Archaeological and linguistic evidence seems to indicate that the Celts immigrated to the Iberian Peninsula in two large waves. The first wave arrived sometime in the 6th and early 5th centuries BC and came to dominate northern and central Portugal, but did not make their way south. The second wave in the 4th and 3rd centuries BC had groups that stayed in the north, but many made their way to central and southern Portugal. Though wherever they settled, they were usually a minority living around and mixing with the native non-Indo-European population, thus creating a new people, the Celtiberians. Even though their numbers were small, it's hard to understate the significance of the arrival of the Celts and their impact upon local cultures. The term Celticization is often used to describe the process of cultural dissemination that took place following these Celtic migrations. Social structures, religious practices, art, warfare, technology, you name it, they transformed it. It's around this time that we actually get Celtic tribal groups being named for the first time by Greek and Latin written sources. For example, the Greek historian Strabo wrote of a tribe called the Turduli, whom he claimed founded multiple cities in southern Portugal. It's also around this time that the people known as the Lusitani were said to be living in central Portugal, between the Douro and Tagus rivers. We'll have more to say about the Lusitani later in our story. During the Iron Age, the northern interior was sparsely inhabited, and communication was severely hampered due to the mountainous terrain. The land was hard to farm, so farming was small-scale and usually worked by the women of the village. That left herding as the main subsistence strategy employed by the people of this region, with goats featuring prominently. They also reared cattle, sheep, horses, and used pigs to forage for acorns. The northern interior was dominated by what are called castros. In simple terms, castros were strategically located fortified villages, where, much like later medieval castles, they served as a refuge for the local populace in times of danger. By this point, castros had grown from their original size and function, containing mud-brick huts and space for livestock. Besides already being located in hard-to-reach locations, castros were also protected by one or more stone walls. Some castros in the southern areas of Portugal grew into substantial settlements. There were even castros that were continually inhabited into the Roman age. In contrast, the western coastal region between Galicia and the Dodo River was more heavily populated than the interior, and the land quite more productive. In the southwest, where the land is flatter and the climate mild, we see Latifundia, which were landed estates where relatively large-scale agriculture and stock-rearing were being practiced. 
There were no kingdoms in the Northern Territories. So, like many tribal societies, immediate and extended family were the principal nucleus in which residential, economic, and religious life revolved around. Evidence suggests that many Castros were governed by a single clan, who was in turn led by a chieftain. In the 4th century BC, we see Castros being constructed in ever-increasing numbers in the north, which probably indicates that widespread violence was common in the region. Further southwest, social tensions were getting dangerously high. The latifundius system mentioned earlier created extremes of wealth and poverty that grew to unprecedented levels. These estates became the target of the fierce Lusitani and Galician raiders from the mountains. Strabo portrays this as a time of endemic violence, with one of the results being the neglect and abandonment of agricultural fields. These were not good times. We will now wind the clock back a little and jump across the Mediterranean Sea to North Africa. From about the mid-6th century BC, the city of Carthage began to play an ever-growing part in the southern Iberian trade network. Being that it was originally a Phoenician colony, it's no surprise that Carthage followed in the footsteps of their commercial-minded cousins. Initially trading in the same locations, and dealing in the same commodities, with metals, especially silver, being of prime interest. Gradually over time, Carthaginian interests evolved from purely commercial to ever-increasing involvement in the political sphere of the peninsula. By the end of the 3rd century BC, Carthage had established control over much of southern Iberia and had constructed a military center at Cartago Nova, modern-day Cartagena. During this time, the Romans, who had already been entangled in a previous war with Carthage, kept a wary eye on Carthaginian activities, but didn't interfere in any meaningful way. But then, in 218 BC, the famous Carthaginian general Hannibal Barca launched his legendary invasion of Rome through the Alps, from his base of Cartago Nova, initiating the Second Punic War. Hannibal's polyglot army included many Iberian tribes, including the Lusitanians. The details of the Second Punic War don't concern us, the final upshot being that Rome eventually won the war, and the Romans took control over the southern and southeastern coast of the Iberian Peninsula. By 197 BC, two Roman provinces were created, Hispania Certerior, near Spain, and Hispania Ulterior, meaning further Spain. Early Roman rule was predatory and focused on maximum extraction of resources, such as gold, silver, copper, wheat, wine, olives, soldiers, and of course, slaves. This type of heavy-handed rule inevitably led to open revolt. The free tribes from the west jumped on the opportunity and began raiding Roman-held territory inexorably leading to Roman punitive actions. This type of scenario was repeated throughout the peninsula over the course of many years, leading the Romans to conclude that complete control over the whole peninsula was the only way to subdue resistance. By 150 BC, the areas of southern and mid-Portugal were both easily and firmly under Roman control, 
The area between the Tagus and Mondego rivers and the mountain regions of the north were a very different story. Here, the Romans were met with fierce resistance. For the next 175 years, from the Lusitani and the Galici and other tribes, before the peninsula as a whole eventually fell to Rome. The people known as the Lusitani were a confederation of tribes that controlled territory that stretched from the Douro River in the north to the Tagus River in the south, and extended eastward to encompass portions of modern Spain. They lived in the Castor tradition of fortified hilltop villages, where they were primarily shepherds that practiced small-scale agriculture. This limited subsistence strategy lent itself to raiding becoming a mainstay of their way of life. Combining this superb horsemanship with hit-and-run tactics, the Lusitani raided deep into Roman territory. These raids provoked a reaction from Rome who sent praetor Servius Galba and proconsul Lucius Lucullus on a combined punitive campaign in 151 and 150 BC. These campaigns ultimately led to a peace deal in exchange for new lands for the Lusitani to settle. Galba betrayed and massacred a large group of Lusitani under the guise of these negotiations. One of the few survivors of this carnage was a young man named Viriatus, who, in time, would become a great leader in the resistance against Rome. Though he is often portrayed as a humble highland shepherd, it has also been suggested that Viriatus was born into a noble Lusitani family. Whatever the case may be, he possessed the kind of charisma that made men want to follow him, and the warrior skills to back it up. For seven years, he waged relentless guerrilla warfare and inflicted upon Rome several humiliating defeats. In 139 BC, being unable to defeat him in battle, the Romans bribed some of his associates and had him assassinated. His death seemed to have put the Lusitani in a defensive footing, and slowly, over the next century, the Lusitani were first contained and then ultimately absorbed into the empire. This left the last pocket of resistance in the mountainous northwest of Iberia, which was ultimately dealt with by Rome's first emperor, Augustus Caesar, who completed the conquest of Iberia in 19 BC. The length of time it took for the Romans to subjugate the entire peninsula is a testament of not only how tough and hardy the native tribes were, but also of the difficulty of the terrain in the rugged parts of the north a feature that would frustrate many an army in the future. Following the Roman conquest, the Iberian Peninsula remained in the empire for nearly 450 years, enough time for the peninsula to become thoroughly Romanized. By adopting the customs and practices of Roman civic life, tribal identity and structure began to take a back seat as a larger Roman political identity began to take hold. Unsurprisingly, this process took hold more rapidly and more firmly in the south since it had been part of the Mediterranean trading system for many centuries, and thus exposed to the influence of new ideas and new people at a steady pace. Slowly but steadily, existing towns adopted many features of what it meant to be a Roman city, such as public and private baths, a central forum, 
a theater, temples to the various gods, and perhaps even an aqueduct. These cities were connected to each other and to the rest of the vast empire by the famous road networks that the Romans built. By the time of Roman occupation, many of the significant modern Portuguese cities were already in existence, but were further developed by Roman civic planners. Even some of the mighty northern castros began to take on Romanized features, though a lot of them were either abandoned or destroyed during the conquest. For the remainder of the Roman era, the prime commercial focus remained on mining, especially gold and silver, but the production of wine and olive oil were essential as well. These commercial activities also attracted immigrant labor, which took full advantage of the geographical mobility that the empire offered, which led to ethnic mixing and further Romanization through Italian colonists. Religion in the ancient world was a very different proposition than it is today. To begin with, there were a dizzying number of deities to choose from. There were gods for just about every aspect of life. When new deities were introduced to new locations, whether through conquest or trade, they were often adopted by the locals through a process of identifying local gods that shared the same characteristics with the gods being introduced and thus they were added to the local pantheons. The religious inclusiveness of the empire led to many oriental cults making their way to western Iberia, such as the mother goddess Sibelle, who originated in Asia Minor and acquired many worshippers in Algarve. By 200 AD, the cult of the Iranian god Mithras, who was extremely popular among soldiers, made its way to the lands of modern-day Portugal. At this time, the principal rival to Mithraism was Christianity. By the early 3rd century, Christian communities were present within the borders of what would one day become Portugal. Predictably, Christianity was a cult that appealed for the most part to those who were in the lowest rungs of society, such as slaves, freedmen, and women all embracing the promise of an afterlife that was better than their current condition. Gradually, some of the elites began to convert to Christianity as well, further increasing its prestige. In 312 AD, the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, greatly boosting the religion's prominence and increasing the number of converts. Christian churches began to be a common feature throughout the empire, especially in towns and cities. Christianity brought with it the unbending rule of monotheism that clashed with the inclusiveness of paganism. By 392 AD, the emperor Theodosius I, who had already declared Catholicism as the state religion, banned paganism altogether. As this edict was declared, little did the people of Iberia know that they were less than 20 years away from events that will effectively end Roman rule in the Iberian Peninsula. Next time on History of Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula will get rocked to its core, crumble and be rebuilt by its new masters, the Visigoths. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.